Very excited to have Greg Graffin, singer of Bad Religion, college professor of evolutionary biology and author of his new book, Punk Paradox. This book chronicles his life from birth to growing up in Wisconsin, to moving to LA, to forming Bad Religion, getting his PhD, headlining the Vans Warp Tour and everything in between. So if you contrast this with Motley Crue's The Dirt, this is the opposite. This is a guy who never drank or did drugs. And in the book, he mentions someone orders a maker's mark with Coke, and he thought it was a made-up drink. Uh, so while The Dirt was really interesting, I think this book is a little bit more relatable for people. And uh, I thought it was a really interesting read and a story about perseverance. And I only get 30 minutes with him, so I tried to get as much wisdom from Greg as I could. Enjoy. The book, Punk Paradox, and it's called Punk Paradox because punk is about anarchy and fucking shit up, but that's not really how your life was as you reflected back, correct? Yeah, I mean, the you know, I had a couple of years to think about it while COVID was raging. I sat around and uh, reflected on my life. Um, I think a lot of people did, man. I noticed it's like memoir season right now because hmm. it's <laughs> a lot of people, you know, spent that time. Um, especially entertainers who are usually very active. Um, you know, we had two summers of inactivity and many months between them uh, where I still felt like being productive. So um, as I reflected more, though, on my life and punk rock, you know, I, I found many um, puzzles and many things that weren't uh, that easy to explain. And it wasn't really a scientific exercise. I wanted to tell a story, you know, a story about um, my journey from the Midwest to California and, you know, the years before Bad Religion and how that helped to shape my um, toolkit in terms of the experiences and the uh, skills, if you want to call them skills, of a teenager. Uh, that I brought to the band. And, you know, the, the paradoxes are numerous. It's like the, as you said, you know, punk is characterized and stereotyped, uh, stereo, I, I should say stereotyped as having these crazy um, nihilistic tendencies and these, uh, you know, the glorification of fucking shit up and, you know, anarchy and no rules, but, that isn't exactly the experience that I had. And yet I think the stereotype is sometimes missing the point of what made punk great. At least for me, I gravitated towards the music and, you know, it, you rarely see treatments of the history of punk that celebrate the great songs and the great uh, songwriting. And, um, you know, I, th I found some consistency in my uh, academic upbringing and kind of the academic pursuit of songwriting. So it's really a memoir from memory. It's not a memoir from research. I didn't go and spend a lot of time researching, um, but because of my analytic brain, it is a, a fairly uh, internally co uh, coherent um, analysis of not only my own life, but also sort of the early 
burgeoning of uh, punks, punk rock in Southern Cal. Yeah. So what did it feel like to write this book and, and share something so personal? Did, did you worry about what other people might think? Like maybe some of the people that you talked about in the book, like, would they get mad for you mentioning them? My I mean, I was definitely intentional when I wrote it. Uh, I'm, I, I did not set out to hurt anyone's feelings. And so if someone's feelings are hurt, uh, they can simply blame my memory. They, <laughs> and, you know, I take, I, it's funny because you could say, oh, I take full responsibility for my memory. But everyone who knows anything knows that memory is flawed. You know, memory is not perfect. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, sure, it came from my own brain cells. But I really was intending to write an interesting and lively story. And to do that, I used the resource of my uh, remembrance. And because of that, you have to, anyone who writes from memory, you have to read the words on the page and recognize that memory is is oftentimes flawed. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's funny. It's early in the book and I'm just getting to know you. I mean, obviously I know the band and I fan of your music, but I don't know you haven't seen a lot of interviews with you. And so I'm reading the book and right off the bat, you're talking about this kid with a wooden leg and I'm, I'm going, is this, is this for real? Is he like joking around? Is this part of like the punk humor or something? And it was like, no, this was real. You had a friend who had a wooden leg. Now, why couldn't he have like a plastic or titanium? Like that just seems really, is that a common uh, thing at the time that people had prosthetic uh, uh, limbs would be wood limbs? I, I think so. Yeah. And I mean, the interesting thing about uh, that story is that um, that kid who we knew uh, when we were only in first grade or, or you know, very young kids, uh, he went on also to move to Southern California and became notorious in the punk scene. Uh, you know, they called him Peg Leg Andre. But, you know, we didn't see him like that. We just saw him as this kid, uh, you know, from our neighborhood who we played with. And, um, uh, you know, he had a, yeah, a wooden leg was very common as a prosthetic back then. They didn't, they didn't have the kinds of materials that they use today. Huh. And uh, he was just a rambunctious little kid that we played with. That's cool. Well, the other thing that's early, early, early on again in the book is uh, you talk about how your parents got divorced. Now, I've had some experience with this working with kids of divorce, and it sounds like you were pretty devastated. Do you think that's kind of like an underrated problem in America right now that no one really talks about uh, how divorce affects kids? Because it seems like it's something that we don't really mention is one of the, the major problems, but I saw it as, as a big thing that affects a lot of kids. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because, uh, it's less important, um, as an experiential thing for me and more important that I used it as a device in the book, mm -hmm. uh, to try to relate to people because it is so common, you know, divorce is so common that most people, they don't dwell on it because they just, you know, they don't, if something's that common, it must not be that traumatic. Right. Well, I, I mean, and you say, well, I was traumatized by it. Well, I think all kids are traumatized by it. And the difference is that if you really want to seek to understand your own journey in life and you just gloss over something 
like divorce, uh, you're not really giving yourself a fair treatment. And so, yeah, you know, I wouldn't say that it traumatized me to the point of incapacity, but it certainly determined, more importantly, it determined my emotional state in many ways, and it determined the course of our family. And therein, you know, lies the, the storytelling aspect of it. So by ignoring that, you 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 really shortchange your own personal journey. Right. Well, and that's a big part of your journey because this is so interesting to me. It's like what you did is you gravitated towards music because you felt like that was a way to please both your parents because both your parents loved music, even though it was different styles of music. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying, again, uh, in storytelling, you try to be honest about uh, what you remember. And, uh, you know, that was not, I have been to psychotherapy in my life, but not about divorce. <laughs> it was, you know, I guess it's it's something that it does seem like a therapeutic uh, exercise to to try to come to terms with why did I gravitate towards something like music? But the truth is, yeah, it was always a an important element in an academic household. And it was something that pleased both my dad, the professor, and my mom, the dean of learning skills. So it was definitely a, um, it explains very nicely how I became so interested in music. Yeah. And I like how you had the balance. Like your dad was like Johnny Cash and Elvis and your mom was like Stevie Wonder and Blood, Sweat and Tears. Uh, But Simon and Garfunkel, that one's interesting to me. You love Simon and Garfunkel. What are your thoughts on what Garfunkel added to the group? Because I think a lot of people don't know. He was more just like the background singer, right? And he didn't even, I don't think he even wrote many or any of the songs. I know he sang lead on Bridge Over Troubled Water, but talk about his importance as a background singer because I think that would later be a big part of Bad Religion is the background, the harmonizing vocals. That was a huge part of your band. Yeah, and of course, when I was first introduced to Bridge Over Troubled Waters, I was like in second grade and third grade going through this divorce. And uh, that song, or that album has a lot of lonely tunes on it. Uh, I think even though I didn't fully comprehend the lyrics, they really spoke to me and made me feel comforted because that was music playing in both households. Um, And of course, I mean, I learned to sing to some of those songs and um, I could even sing the harmony parts, but I didn't really at that age analyze what what good was Art Garfunkel? You know, <laughs> you're just you're hearing this sonic, um, you know, this sonic, um, uh, um, so, you know, the the sound was tranquil to me, and it was two voices harmonizing. So it it made me comforted. And looking back on it, those albums and those recordings are classic. You know, later in life, I can analyze what you asked me about, like, what was his value? And of course, those albums, like all albums, they're snapshots in time. And they're incredibly impossible to, uh, I should say, they're incredibly difficult to, um, to judge how it might have been. Because, you know, from this perspective, you look at it as perfect. It's, It's a snapshot of a moment in time. And would they have been so popular without 
the harmonies? I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. And I think they were partners, obviously. And that's probably uh, that transcends the, uh, the partnership itself transcends the, uh, the importance of each individual. So it's uh, truly the sum was, uh, is greater than the parts. Absolutely. Yeah. It just reminds me like later when you talk about, um, uh, the, was it Brett that left that cause he did the background vocals. Right. And then, so that was like tough. He had Brian come in, but he had to learn how to do background vocals. So that is kind of an underrated part of bands. I feel like. Yeah. You do. Well, I mean, yeah. Harmony is like you said, part of what makes bad religion, uh, unique. So yeah. Um, always loved it. absolutely. And then, so you talk about when you're a teenager, um, you know, you just kind of had, you felt maybe a little bit lost. I think the quote, as you say, uh, in the book, um, having no excuse for laziness, I must've seemed like a louse to the academics and adults in my mom's circles. I didn't really care, but I did feel like I had to prove myself as worthy in some way. So obviously you eventually find your way and, uh, you know, you're fronting a band, you become a college professor. Um, so do you, what, what is your, your advice to people at that stage? Cause that's, again, I, I used to work with teenagers and a lot of them go through that where they just are kind of lost. How do you, what advice do you have to teenagers to finding their way or what advice do you have to parents to help their kids find their way? Cause I feel like that's an important part of the world right now is helping kids find a, their path. Yeah. I think my advice would be better to parents than kids because um, parents often are too, um, they impose their will on their kids and the kid, you know, the, so the kid is like, going to ask you like what should i do well you you know to to be really um to, to make it easiest you got to you have to do what they want you to do because breaking away from that the rebellion is going to is going to impose all kinds of problems in itself so you're either restricted by your parents um demands or you're restricted by the rebellion i mean so <laughs> the, so the the real problem is the parents who are imposing their will on the kids. And uh, I was very fortunate in that both of them see, that's why I try. And I'm glad you brought it up because uh, what comes through in the narrative is that this, I call it, you know, my family was, um, I, I refer to it as graph you. It was like mm -hmm. a big university, you know, it was like they, there was definitely a high expectation, but it was not, forced or thrust upon us and that gave us uh, students at graph and you the ability to find our own way so you gotta it's hard for parents nowadays you got to relax your expectations but you but it's so important because then the kids will feel it incumbent upon themselves to um you know to meet the standards uh that has been that has been established in the household and the uh, in our case, you know, my brother, as I said, he could always get the good grades and he was always, you know, the, the math whiz. But I was pretty lazy uh, academically and I didn't feel like I could achieve those goals. But but you know what? I was pretty good in sports and I loved to play play ball and I was good at uh, music. And those things gave me satisfaction, even though there was no viable um, way of like turning it into a career. And so I was, because of probably the, um, lack of 
the lack of oversight, if you will, um, in the household, I was allowed to meet up eventually with these other slackers called bad religion. <laughs> yeah. And but, then together we were pretty industrious. Yeah. But then you stayed away from drugs at a young age and you just, you discussed that more in the book. Obviously people need to get the book. We're just touching some of the topics here, but what do you think the answer for that is? How do we keep kids off drugs? Cause you never got mixed up in that stuff as long as your band went on. I mean, we have, we have like a huge fentanyl issue in Arizona. I mean, I, I don't know what the answer to that is like, but for you, you just never even seemed curious about it. Yeah. You're talking to someone who's really, a, a, you know, when I was young, I didn't think I was such an outlier, but now a little <laughs> later in life, I realized that I realized that it's pretty incredible that I was surrounded by right? hard, hard drugs. And I just, there's something in me that just never wanted to experiment with them. Um, and I've, I've gone on record before as saying, I think I was afraid of them because, um, I was afraid of, uh, what they might do to me. You know, I would lose control of my intellect or I would, you know, I had, I had so few accolades as an intellectual anyways, I didn't want to lose what I had achieved. So <laughs> I don't know what it was, but I, it's a very rare thing. And I, I also know just from my study of biology that a lot of those uh, cravings and desires uh, it's, are genetic. They're, it's well established that, that it, there's a material basis for a lot of alcoholism and a lot of uh, drug addiction, and it comes down uh, hereditary lines. And maybe I just avoided that by not getting the, the, the gene for it. Yeah. Uh, certainly my parents were not, um, they didn't drink. There wasn't alcohol around the house. I think that helped, but, um, I just wasn't curious in any hmm. way. Yeah. It worked out for you. Um, now you also talk about when you put the band together, there was a lot of joking around it and you would do impersonations like Tom Schneider. Can I hear like an impersonation, either a past one or is there any more contemporary impersonations that you still do <laughs> you're asking man you're asking for like uh impersonations of guys on television from 40 years ago i remember Nobody tom schneider really, i could do anything and and people would still not know what the hell i'm <laughs> talking about but tom snyder was great but he was a fellow wisconsinite and uh he had a he had a late night talk show um, you know, after Johnny Carson. So he was the, the equivalent of the late, late show. You right. Know, so probably who's ever doing that now. I don't even know. I mean, you know, Colbert comes on late. Right. But um, those guys have, have the equivalent time slot of what Tom Snyder had. And Tom Snyder would uh, have, you know, kind of the more unique guests. And I remember one time he had the punk band, uh, or he had the first, he, he called them the first punk band. Um, but, but I think they were just a bunch of group of guys from New York. Uh, probably one of them was, it may have been David Johansson from the New York Dolls, but, hmm. but you know, it was, this was the seventies and it was a group of punkers and, and he would always smoke during his interviews. So there was smoke everywhere and he would light up a cig 
And he just asked the guys, okay, guys, why all the violence? (laughs) Or something like really very, very pedestrian. But you had to, um, you really had to see his antics to really understand how out of out of touch he was and yet he was extremely popular hmm. yeah there wasn't a lot of options back there wasn't a million podcasts and youtube channels back then so you kind of had oh, to watch exactly. yeah well so yeah, then now you can you're probably right you can go look up tom snyder yeah just type in no i remember you, him. You, you could type in uh, tom snyder and punk and see <laughs> that's awesome well so then in the 80s uh people kind of a lot of the punk fans gravitated towards metal, you said, because of all the violence and stuff at the punk shows. But you kind of thought hair metal, or you, you not kind of, you did think hair metal was ridiculous. Do you still feel that way? Well, let's make something clear here. I didn't think the music was ridiculous. I thought the fashion was ridiculous. Oh, okay. Because I, I, I love actually, the music. I, <laughs> the yeah, fashion, well, I, you're right. I would agree with that. I, I completely understand why punkers would would gravitate towards it because the music a lot of the music was good uh it was it was not as uh insight uh, or incisive it wasn't as uh what i would say you know uh charged with um controversy as punk but uh you know the lyrics sometimes were ridiculous but the music itself was really good and fun and so a lot of punk rockers who didn't want to get, you know, go and go have a riot or go beat up each other, which makes a lot of sense. They gravitated towards the, the you know, hair metal uh, concerts. Mm-hmm. And that's, it was totally understandable. I just couldn't, you know, I could not find myself doing that. I still thought punk had a lot to offer, but it basically, there was nowhere to play it because the, the clubs wouldn't um, allow punk shows because of the violence aspect. Right. Well, and then you have a whole chapter here about uh, selling out. Cause I remember that was a big thing. I remember that in the nineties, my friend who told you, told me about uh, bad religion the first time, uh, you know, he was very critical of bands if they sold out. And I remember like when MC hammer remember he, they said he sold out because he did a TV show or a cartoon or something. But now it seems like, Everybody has a TV show or they're acting or they have a million other things. Do you think being a sellout, is that even a thing at this point anymore? <laughs> I don't know if it's a thing anymore. I mean, uh, the the concept itself uh, was trivialized. So there would be, um, you know, if a band that used to tour in a van all of a sudden now is in a tour bus, you'd be accused of selling out. I mean, that's a that's just a trivial, almost nonsensical criterion for calling someone a sellout. Um, so it became kind of trivial. But the concept of selling out, you know, the integrity part of it, it's like if you give up your integrity uh, just to be more popular, that is selling out and, and that still exists. So I think the triviality has gone away. But there's still people who care deeply about integrity. And um, although you're right, it's easy to be cynical today and say there isn't any more integrity. But I think that that aspect does live on. You know, you don't you don't just play music because it's popular. You play music because it's a part of you. And and I think the fans can sense that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I mean, I really enjoyed the book. I, I just felt like at the end. 
I wasn't sure, like, there wasn't like a conclusion that wrapped it all up. Like, what do you think after all your life experience? Like, I totally respect your opinion so much because of like everything, your education and, and being a front man of a band. Like, what do you think it all meant? Like, how do you want this book to inspire other people? Like, is it just mostly perseverance or is there more lessons? That's a really good question. And um, it's a very, uh, you know, after you've read the book, um, you may have to, you may have to sift through it again because there is there is a deeper and a persistent theme to the book. Um, and that is that when you ultimately, you know, everyone's in the process through life of defining themselves, you know, trying to understand yourself. If you can't understand yourself, you really can't understand anything in the world. And that's something that I hope is not lost in the future. You know, because to know thyself is the ultimate knowledge. But in order to do that is a very difficult thing. And I I couched it in the search or the quest for understanding um, the origin of punk as a culture and myself in that in that cultural milieu. And, you know, I did actually summarize it uh, in the last pages when I said that you know, in order to do that, you're going to have to identify the original punk. Who was it? Who's the original punk? And I said that the search for that, that's where the, the real quest in life is the, is the journey, the search. And that's what we should celebrate. Because luckily, especially with punk, um, that journey will lead to good things. And the good news is that the extinction of punk that is the death of the you know the end of the journey is nowhere near in sight so that's really an uplifting way to look at the end of the book too absolutely well i know you got to get going here uh last thing is i always like to end with a charity promoting a charity is there a charity that's uh near and dear to your heart that people can donate to after they buy your book uh sure i mean i, I always i always like to um I'm pretty old fashioned when it comes to charity. You know, I, I don't think that um, you necessarily can save the world by donating to something global. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes down to need, uh, needs are usually seen in your own community. And if you can just help out people near and dear to you in your own community, that's the best thing you can do. So I always go for, um, local food banks and the uh, the food bank of the southern tier uh, in New York is a, is a worthy um, recipient. Yeah, I think that's something we can all get behind uh, donating to, to food. Everybody needs food. Everybody can agree. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I know you got to get going, so I'll let you go. I really appreciate it. And good luck with this book. I, I think it's great. I think people should pick it up for sure. Well, many thanks. And I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye, Greg. Bye-bye. My thanks to Greg Graffin and A Bad Religion and his PR team. He's a legend and I can't believe he did my show, but here we are. So I'm very grateful. I wish I had more time, but uh, hopefully I can have him back again. I have a lot more questions to ask him. I would love to see him on Joe Rogan. I think that would be a fun back and forth. Um, make sure to get his new book, Punk Paradox. It's great stuff. Even if you aren't a fan of the music, it's just a good read of a regular guy's life. And I think all people have an interesting story to tell. That's why I've had almost 300 episodes of this show where everyone tells their story. 
And if you want to help support this episode and show uh, and the show and Bad Religion, your likes, shares, and comments on social media will help the algorithm so more people will see it. And of course, make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen so that you'll be the first to hear of new episodes. Uh, we've got some fun guests lined up, so stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your day and shoot for the moon. <laughs>